If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today is episode 75 and we're going to be interviewing Stuart L. How are you doing today, Stuart? I'm fantastic as usual. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So uh, as I say, let's dive in and get the party started. Tell us about growing up in your childhood. Well, uh, my grandmother put a label on me, kind of like when I was growing up, because everybody else was like, I didn't mark it, set, go. But I, she said, I was ready, go. And, you know, because in my thinking, it was like, if I needed to get somewhere, why don't I just get there so that I can get done and be done and get it over with so I can come back to doing what I was doing before I started doing it. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, uh, just always kind of being beat down because people would tell me to do something and I did it right away, you know, and they weren't really, really ready. You know, and it's it's still happening a little bit these days because I'll notice that, you know, like well, my mom will, me will pull up to eat at a restaurant and uh, I'll be out of the car and in the restaurant and she'll just be exiting the car, you know. So, yeah, I'm, I kind of like have to be a little bit mindful, you know, when uh, I'm getting I'm getting better, you know. I see where the holes are at in the street and I'm making arrangements to avoid them before I actually find another street to go down. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working to improve myself constantly. So what was, what was, uh, I know we were just talking earlier about your childhood. I know you grew up a different way than some people. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I grew up and I was a Hove's witness from birth and from infancy and uh you know i was made to study the bible which i had and i uh was made to go to the kingdom hall uh you know uh three nights a week total of five hours a week and you know i just i would have to stop watching my tv shows and everything you know just to go to hear some you know people talk at the kingdom hall about worthless dribble to me you know it's like i had no desire to you know want to study but uh it, it 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 gave me a pretty good foundation as far as you know knowing what's in the bible and stuff but uh uh my mom and and dad were both drinkers you know and my mom she was real young you know my mom had me when she was 17 years old and uh i guess my my dad's family wanted her to give them to me to raise give give me to them to raise so you know so that she could continue with her childhood growing up but you know she wouldn't do it her mother told her to hang on to me and not let me go so you know i uh I had to put up with, you know, being raised by a, an inexperienced mom. And I, I was the only child for uh, six years from 1964 until 1970 when my little brother was born. And, uh, you know, then he was like two years old and I was eight and my dad decided that he didn't want to be in the family anymore. So he left. And he kind of left me and my brother stranded, you know, with my mom to my mom's devices and stuff, you know, and she wasn't too tightly wrapped, and, uh, you know, 
but uh, uh, you know, she uh, would hit me with a lot of different things, coffee court, actually what was available to her at the time. She would hit me with it, you know, and take her frustrations and anger out on me, you know, and it left me feeling that, you know, that, that I had this effect on people that would make them just reject me all the time, you know, and it, it became kind of a resentment. You know, to where if I got rejected by people later on in life, I, it really, it really caused me problems and issues. You know, and then uh, so my dad, he immediately got married to another woman, and they were married for two years, and they had children, and you know they lived in the suburb, uh, and you know they had, she had three children an older boy who was retarded, uh, almost an adult, and then uh, a 10-year-old girl and a 12-year-old girl. And, uh, you know, they were normal, normally thinking and stuff, but uh, they had a swimming pool, and I'd go over there on Sundays, you know, from like 1 to 6 in the afternoon and spend time with them, you know, and I they became like my second family, even though I wasn't spending a whole lot of time with them, you know, but, uh, in the meantime, my mom was, uh, single for a couple years. And then she got married to this guy who had, who was working, having her be his third marriage. And, uh, he had some problems that we didn't know about that my mom didn't know about. And, uh, <clears throat> the reason why he was had to leave those two marriages, as a matter of fact, and uh, you know, but uh, he was uh, he took over the discipline from my mom, and you know, because he was the head of the house, and they believe the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that you know that the man is the head of the house, and you know, but. We, we didn't celebrate any of the holidays or anything. And the kids would come around, you know, at Halloween and they'd be all dressed up in their costumes and stuff. And I, we wouldn't have any candy to hand out or anything, you know, and kind of made them mad. And, you know, it was upsetting to me because, you know, it was like, why couldn't I, you know, dress up too? You know, it's like, it just didn't make any sense just because we were Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, but uh, that they're under the belief that Jesus said to be separate from the world. So that means that they can't do the things that the pagan people do. You know, the people that are going to be destroyed at Armageddon when, when Armageddon gets around and coming around. So my whole family's Jehovah's Witnesses. They all have a Jehovah's Witness mentality and, uh, really they they made me who I really am today you know and uh, at least they started me and you know it was like I wasn't I'm it's never too good at really handling stress a lot of stress so uh, you know I've learned how to avoid it lay later on in my life but it took a while to get there you know I'm 58 years old now and uh I've learned a few things, you know, I've experienced a lot of things and I've finally come to a realization within the last year or two, you know, about my recovery and about the way, about reality and the way things work on this planet. So, uh, but back to my dad, uh, my dad was married to her for a couple of years and, uh, when they were 12 years old, they got a divorce and uh, he stopped coming around, you know, and I, I was left just my mom and my stepdad and, you know, my stepdad was a drinker. He, he drank quite a bit. He was an alcoholic and uh, he would uh, really abuse the crap out of me, you know, he'd, uh, uh, 
what they call discipline, you know, because they believe that, you know, if you spare the spare the rod, you'll spoil the child. And that if you don't, if the parent doesn't discipline his child, then that means that he doesn't care about him, you know, and <laughs> their ideas are kind of warped. And this is a Jehovah's Witness thing that you should kind of be the aggressor. I mean, pardon me. It sounds like they're trying to tell you to be the aggressor, you know? Uh, well, with the children, you know, I mean, they want you to to show that you care about your child. You're going to discipline him. But back then in the 70s, it was discipline meant to beat the crap out of them, you know? Yep. And the more you beat them, the better they'd be. But, you know, it just made me resentful. You know, it gave me more reasons to want to get away from them. And I did get away from them. I ran away from home when I was 14 years old and I never went back just because I was done being abused and neglected, you know? So, uh, but I didn't realize that I was being abused and neglected at the time. I didn't find out until years later that, that that was actually what I had been considered by the other people that, you know, that, that analyzed situations and came up with their own theories and stuff, you know, but, uh, so I didn't see my dad for like three or four years. And then, uh, one day I decided to do some investigative work myself and I tracked him down at work because I knew he worked for general motors. And so I called general motors and they gave me a number and I called that number and they put him on the phone, you know, and I'm like, dad, you know, it's like, how the heck have you been? You know? And it's like, at this time I'm, you know, 13, 13 and a half, almost 14 years old. And, uh, you know, so we made plans to get together. My, my, my family, he hadn't been around in so long that they were just telling me that I had, you know, I didn't need to be around him and stuff like that. So, you know, they were like, uh, stay away from him, don't even bother contacting him or anything, you know, but I love my dad, you know, and I really wanted to be with him. So uh, we, we made plans to, to get back together and he started picking me and my brother up on Sundays again. And, you know, I went over to uh, where he lived at and uh, she, his wife lived with her brother and her brother had a couple of, uh, teenage older teenage boys that were like 16 and 17 years old at the time and uh they got me uh started smoking pot and i remember the first time i smoked pot i i just i felt it and i laid back on on the floor on the carpet and i was thinking i was gonna die because i'd never felt like that before you know and i remember uh it was about the same time that i got drunk for the first time in my life. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I developed my own. It was like, I wanted to get high and drunk more than I wanted to be abused at home. You know, would you, do you think now you're using that as an escape from reality, from your home life? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because my life was pretty bad, you know, the things that I had to go through and experience, you know, it was bad. So uh, getting high and drunk was a way for me to get away from that, and you know, experience that was uh, more pleasant to me than, you know, be but abused and neglected. <clears throat> but, uh, so uh, the year that I was 14, my dad, the last thing he said to me was uh, he yelled at me and he said to just leave him alone. You know, he was upset about something and, you know, he, he but that's the last thing I remember him saying to me. And then uh, after that, he killed himself. Sorry to hear that. What happened? Do you yeah. know? 
Yeah, he took an overdose of sleeping pills. But, you know, he must have had problems and stuff. He was sick. You know, he was an alcoholic. And uh, he was having problems in his life. And he hated the fact that he was Mexican. <laughs> because uh, he liked white girls. And, uh, you know, the white girls' families and stuff looked at him like he was a dirty Mexican. And they wanted to get their daughters away from him and stuff, you know. But uh, I don't know. My family accepted him. My, my Stuart family, you know, because I was named after my mom's maiden name. Okay. Yeah, so Stuart was the name. But, uh, yeah, so when he killed himself, it sent me into a deep, dark depression, you know, that I still haven't fully recovered from, you know, but it's getting better, you know. But anyway... Um, yeah, I stopped going to school and I started running away. I started hitchhiking all across the United States. I hitchhiked, I don't know how many times I hitchhiked from Michigan to Florida. You know, I just, I, it couldn't hold me down anymore. I was just wild. You know? uh, one one time I woke up and I was in Washington, D.C. Hmm. I hitched up uh, Interstate 95 to Washington, D.C., you know. And, uh, just, just I went through a lot of stuff, you know, being antisocial and stuff, you know. I got beat up a lot. Was there a reason you were hitchhiking to Florida? Was there anything down there? It was just open road, you know, and it was a chance for me to be alone and by myself, which I really wanted because I didn't want to be around my family because they were, you know, so abusive and neglectful. And they really weren't raising me right, you know, I mean, and I was having to, you know, rely on them for my support. And it's like, well, if I got to rely on them, I might as well do it myself, you know, so. So I ended up, uh, after that, I ended up getting married. Actually, I, I ended up, uh, what happened exactly was I ended up in uh, Whitmore Lake Training School, W.J. Maxey, for uh, juvenile delinquents, state ward juvenile delinquents that, you know, had uh, committed felonies and stuff like that, and they needed so a place just going back a little bit, you had become a ward of the state? Yeah. Yeah, I was a ward of the court, and the court couldn't do nothing with me because I kept running away from their facilities. And so they put, made me a ward of the state because the state had other options. But they couldn't do anything with me either. You know, I ran away from their facilities too. And uh, But I was really smart. You know, I, I had a lot of intelligence, had a real high IQ, and I went to uh, this this training school called W.J. Maxey, BTS, was training school, and uh, I got my GED while I was in there. I didn't study for it for just for a couple months, and I took the whole test in one day and passed it all in one day, the first time. And, uh, I came up with the best score out of the whole group that I was in. And, uh, you know, they gave me an IQ test and uh, the teachers were all puzzled about why I was in there because I was so smart, you know, but uh, kind of like I always heard that Einstein couldn't tie his own shoes. So, you know, it's like sometimes being that smart can be a curse. Now I've heard stuff like that before that, I mean, some of the smartest people in the world have a very little understanding of certain things. Right. Right. Exactly. So, uh, so when I finally got back to my hometown, Pontiac, Michigan, uh, 
I ended up taking a state a test with the state and uh, and then after a few days after that I got drunk and I broke into the school across the street and I was kind of like bouncing off the walls and stuff you know uh, it was an it was a, a an unoccupied school it was a deserted school what was the test you took for it was just for uh basic education you know to see to see how much you and stuff but anyway i went to jail and while i was in jail i was in there for a couple for like two and a half months and uh one day at uh the exam for circuit at the pretrial examination for circuit court, uh, which is the final stages of your sentencing to, to rule, to, to, you know, figure out what your disposition is going to be about the things, you know, about the crime that you committed. And I had broke into an unoccupied structure, so it wasn't really a violent crime or anything. And I was 10 years old. I had my 18th birthday in jail and, uh, but they came to me and they said, Stuart, you took a test with the state of Michigan. You came in 32nd out of 3,000. And they said, they want to send you to, uh, they want to give you a scholarship to go to school and they're going to pay you to go to school. So it was kind of like a job, you know, going to school and learning. So they let me out of jail to do that. And I did, I did that. I graduated from, uh, with an electronics degree and, and then after that, I got sentenced to two years probation. And uh, so I got a job. I was working for uh, a fast food joint, flipping hamburgers and stuff. And uh, one day I overslept my alarm clock and I was late getting into work and I got fired for it. So at, it, it, I was living at a place paying rent and stuff. And, you know, I could no longer pay my rent because I didn't have a job. So I was, you know, kind of reviewing my options. And the only option I could come up with was to go on the road again. So I, I went on the road and I started, I had the idea in my head to hitchhike to California. Uh, but I didn't really make it that far. As far as I made it was Fort Worth, Texas. And when I got to Fort Worth, Texas, there was so many jobs, they couldn't find enough people to do them and I was in the perfect position I had a driver's license that gave me a van to drive the guys all these guys and stuff to the job and you know it's like uh, I was working that was the important thing was that I was working and doing something constructive with my life you know and then Fort Worth the, the people at the center where I was staying they got tired of me because of the way I was and everything you know so they told me to go to Dallas which was 30 miles away so I went to Dallas working for the same company and uh you know they had this bunkhouse in the back you know and I I work and pay pay the rent for the bunkhouse and um, you know buy marijuana and stuff you know and uh I only had enough money just to, you know, pay rent, buy food and smoke a little dope. And, you know, and then I met this girl and I ended up moving in with her. She was, uh, happened to be the, uh, the daughter of the principal of Laredo high school, <laughs> one, one high school in Laredo. And, uh, you know, I was, going, I was living with his daughter in Dallas and uh, that worked out for like six months and then she got tired of me and you know I ended up going to Houston hitchhiked down to Houston and I got a job working for uh, doing electronics and then uh, then one night I got drunk and I crashed my car and I drove it home after I crashed it I drove it home and parked it across the street from where my apartment was at. And the next morning I woke up and I hitchhiked back up here to Michigan. But when I left to go to Fort Worth, I had violated my probation in Michigan. 
So when I ended up going back to coming, going back to Michigan, you know, and things were going fine. You know, I was working and I had another girlfriend and stuff. And uh, they, they caught me one night and put me in jail. And, you know, they sentenced me to six months in jail. And uh, in the six months, I must have had about 5,000 phone calls with this girl that I had been living with. And we were making plans on getting married. And some days I'd just scream at her and hang up, you know, but she kept calling back and she still wanted me and stuff, you know. And uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day, I got I gotten out of jail on the 6th of February of uh, 1986. And on the Valentine's Day, just a few days later, I ended up getting married to her in a, in a courtroom uh, for the first time I was married. And uh, she had this, she got this lawsuit, a big lawsuit, and we ended up moving down to Texas, back down to Dallas. And uh, I, that's when I started using crystal meth. I was shooting that, you know, and who did you who did you first use meth with? Like who introduced you to it? I think it was this kid that was hanging around over at our house because we were new. We were new in the neighborhood, and the kid the kids you know the kids are curious and they want to know about who's moving in and stuff. So, did your wife do it with you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I learned how to started learning how to cut trees when I was down there in 1984. And here it is 1986 and I'm still cutting trees down. And, uh, you know, uh, so I stayed there from 86 to 90 shooting meth almost every day. And you said I'm 16 to 19? Pardon me? What, what age were you? Oh, I was, uh, well, in 84, I was 20. Okay. So in 86, I was 22. And in 90, I was 26. And I came back up to Michigan, me and her. And uh, there was no meth around then. So the only one day my stepbrother came over and he brought some crack cocaine with him and I tried that and it made me feel just like meth did for like, but it was only lasting for like 15 minutes, you know, and I was back to, <laughs> back to wanting to smoke some more. So, uh, <clears throat> so I started my crack career in 1990 and, uh, and then my stepdad got pulled over. He, he got in a wreck. Uh, and he got charged with uh, operating under the influence of liquor, which is, a, a you know, an alcohol-related driving offense. And uh, they made him go to AA meetings. So he called me one night and he asked me if I wanted to go with him. And I said, sure, I'll go with you. You know, I always wanted to know what an AA meeting was like. And I remember I got in the AA meeting and uh, I said, well, how do you know if you're an alcoholic? And the guy says, well, if you find yourself in an AA meeting, chances are you're an alcoholic. And I said, come on. I said, I was just invited here and I just decided to come here. Why, why am I an alcoholic? Because I accepted the invitation, you know? So I was like, <laughs> I was like thinking the guy was nuts, you know? But, uh, you know, he ended up being right. In uh, 1992, uh, after I had smoked crack for a couple of years, you know, uh, I went into a treatment center. And uh, on the last day of the treatment center, they kicked me out. They said, what made you seek treatment in the first place? Did something happen where you had to go or did you do it on your own? 
Yeah, I, I uh, had these checks. Back then, you know, you could uh, write checks for a month, bad checks for a month and get away with it before they would, before it would uh, register on the list that all the all the merchants had would have saying that the checks were no good. So during that month, I wrote like $18,000 worth of bad checks. And uh, then the month was up and I couldn't write them no more. And I still had a bad habit. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? You know, so it was recommended that I go into treatment. So I went into treatment. And uh, I was in there with people who had smoked crack for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And I'm thinking, man, well, I've only been smoking for a couple of years. And it's like, I like it. And why can't I, you know, continue my crack smoking career, you know? So, uh, so they ended up discharging me out of the program. On the last day that I was there, I got taken out in a, on a stretcher by paramedics on my way to the state hospital. And, uh, I got to the state hospital and the state hospital said, well, you're, there's nothing wrong with you. You're fine. So they cut me loose and I was back out smoking crack again. And uh, so it got to where I was, didn't have any other place to go. And my mom brought me home to her house. And, uh, but I could only stay there for a couple of days. You know, she had to find some place for me to go. So I went into another treatment center. Uh, well, actually, we went to this three-quarter house in Pontiac, downtown. And they, they wouldn't accept me because I hadn't successfully completed a treatment program. Because even though I was in the Fox Center, they, had, you know, didn't complete me on the program because I you know, got taken off by paramedics. So, and I got kicked out of the program. So, so I ended up going into a, a treatment center in Bay in Bay City called Bay Haven, and I was stayed there for 28 days. And I completed the program. And then when I got out of there, I went back down to the three quarter house in Pontiac, and they accepted me. So while I was one day, I was uh, just out walking around in downtown Pontiac and I saw another treatment center and I kind of liked that treatment center. So I, I joined that treatment center and then I ended up moving out of the three quarter house and into the treatment center that where I was at and that treatment center, there was two guys there, uh, Phil Wickersham and Ted church. Phil Wickersham was a psychologist and Ted church was an old sacred heart counselor who was, you know, he had retired from Sacred Heart being a counselor there. And he was kind of like just just being there as a sidekick, you know. But he he was a counselor there in the program because he had his own office and stuff. And I remember he had this clock, this cuckoo clock, and it only had one arm on it, <laughs> you know. And it would go around in circles and stuff, you know. Uh, like a regular clock, but it only, I, you know, I said, well, what's the point of having a clock like that? It was so funny. These, these, these people, the doctor would dress in, in two different colored socks and he'd put his leg up on his other leg, you know, kind of like, you know, how, how they do it. They cock their leg and stick their foot up on the top of their other leg. And, and, you know, it was apparent that both sides were different, you know, and we'd all get a big laugh out of that and stuff. You know, he, I thought it was funny and everybody else did too. But, you know, this, this guy would say like, oh, you're my twin brother, you know, because, and then he'd explain, oh, well, we're all body, mind, and spirit. So that's what makes us all identical. So, you know, he, they taught the, they taught treatment directly out of the big book. You know, if, if it wasn't in the big book, they didn't recommend it. Because uh, he, he said that you could go and buy hundreds of dollars worth of self-help books and, you know, 
do all this and that and all that, and it wouldn't be as good of information as you would get out of buying a $5 big book, which is how much they were back then. But, uh, but you know, when I first got in there, they handed me a four-step package, and every day they'd ask me if I was, if I had finished with my four-step yet, and I finally got so tired of it that I just went ahead and did it. You know, it took me a couple weeks to do it. And I had like 27 pages of uh, of resentments written down and stuff, you know. But I remember the, uh, I went ahead and finished it because I got tired of hearing them ask me if I was done doing it. And uh, I did a fist step. And after I did the fist step, I was, I felt so much different. You know, I felt like I was uh, actually... I felt so much lighter, like some, like somebody had taken and lifted a massive weight off of my shoulders, you know, and I felt like I was actually floating, walking, walking down the hallway. I felt like I was floating like six feet above the ground because I felt so much different, you know, and I didn't realize then that that's, I had, that that was my spiritual experience, but, uh, you know, the big book says that a spiritual experience is just, uh, nothing more than a personality change sufficient to cover. So, you know, that was the beginning of, of changing of my personality because I realized that, you know, that I had these character defects and that other people weren't responsible for creating my problems, which I thought that everybody was, you know. And I realized that I was the creator of my own problems. So I could never point my finger at other people after that and tell them, oh, well, you know, you're causing me problems and stuff because it would make me think, well, huh, you know, I created my own problem. You know, so I stayed clean for like a year and a half after that. And then I got went back out and started doing my own thing again. But I was uh, operating a tree service at the time. And I figured that I needed to make money, money, making money was more important than, you know, staying, continuing going to meetings and wasting all that time doing that and stuff. Just figured it was a waste of time. So, uh, so I, uh, I was operating this tree service, you know, and, uh, it was hard because I didn't have any any advertising other than, you know, my own uh, mouth. You know, I'd drive up and down the streets looking for things, that, trees that looked full and, you know, the broken branches and stuff. And I'd stop and I'd knock on the door and I'd ask them if they, needed it, if they wanted to have any work done. You know, most of the time they said no, but every once in a while someone would say yes. And, you know, it was enough to keep me going, you know. In the business, uh, but then, so so that's in the nineties, you know, and uh, the nineties came and went, and uh, you know the double lots came and went, and in ninety three, well in nineteen ninety one, me and my first wife got a divorce, and. I went the whole 90 year of 92 and 93 and in 93, I was back down in Dallas. And when I was back down in Dallas, the police pulled me over and found out all these warrants for all these bad checks that I had written. So they uh, extradited me back up to Michigan and I got up there and I had like uh, six checks, only six that they were prosecuting me for. And they were prosecuting me two at a time, two, two checks at a, for each case. So that was three cases. So when I pled guilty to that, that put another three felonies on my record. So that mean, meant that I had four felonies on my record then because one from back when I was 18. And uh, <clears throat> so I got married right after that in 1993 and me and her we stayed together 
for 15 years until uh, 2007. And then, uh, and then we got divorced <laughs> and uh, she ended up uh, introducing me to my third wife, my second wife. And she was like, she, my second wife was a witch and she created a spell uh, that would m- make her be who she was supposed to be in her life. And she, she followed through with it and everything. And we ended up moving out of the house that we were in into a motel. And she introduced me to this girl that was there. And, you know, I ended up uh, divorcing my wife and uh, marrying this other girl. So, uh, so in 2011, at the beginning of 2011, I had a nervous breakdown and I didn't know it was a nervous breakdown back then. I just didn't know what it was, but I was in a coma for four days and my wife came in to see me and I didn't even know who she was. You know, I mean, I, I can remember that she came in to see me now, but I wasn't acting right at all, you know, cause I was in a coma. I was still in a coma and I was being able to, to you know, do things and uh, when I finally came to four days later I had I was uh, restrained to the bed my arms were tied down and my legs and they said the reason why was because I kept ripping out my IVs but they said if you're back to your normal senses now we'll take them off so they did you know but I remember I lost my ability to communicate I, I couldn't even hardly tell you my own name is how bad it was. And, uh, you know, it stayed that way for, for, you know, uh, for a couple more years, a few more years, matter of fact. And then uh, in 2014, I got caught with uh, 0.9 grams of cocaine by the police. And I didn't want to go to prison. So because I'd never been to prison before. And so I went into treatment. I went into another treatment center. And, you know, I haven't stuck a needle in my arm since then. So, uh, but I had two years clean and I ended up uh, violating the probation that I got put on. And I got sent to prison anyway. I was sentenced to 22 months to 15 years. And I had two years clean. And I'm wondering, well, why in the heck would my higher power send me to prison for, uh, you know, for a couple of years when I got two years clean and sober, you know? And, it, and, like, and but I realize now what it was, you know, that, uh, that my higher power wanted me to experience have that experience so that I could help other people that had also been in that situation you know help show them the the way out you know so uh, I remember at the end of the 22 months I uh, you know everybody else was getting out on the day that you know that the earliest release date was and I was still having to go to this class that the parole board wanted me to take for like another 20 days. So I finished successfully completed the course that they had wanted me to take. And I'm just waiting around thinking I'm, Oh, I'm going to get out of jail soon. But a month later, I got this letter from the parole board and the parole board said, well, in a couple more months, we're going to send you, we're going to put you on parole, but we're going to send you to another prison where you're going to be on parole and you're going to do this three months program. And when you get done with the three months, we're going to let you out and you're going to be on parole for another nine months. So, so people in the program, this program that I was in, they watched me take notes every single day and after two months of taking notes, they came to the conclusion 
that the notes that I was taking could possibly violate the confidentiality agreement that I had agreed that I wouldn't violate, you know, when confidentiality, I confidentiality agreement for what? For not telling people about what was going on in group. Okay. Yeah. They said, well, if you go telling other people about what is said in group that we're going to kick you out and you're going to violate your parole. Oh, you mean if you talk about other people and what they shared? Yeah, so I never did, you know, but I was taking notes. And the notes that I was taking, if somebody had read them, they would have known the things that were said. I didn't realize that when I was writing that down, you know. So they ended up kicking me out of the program. It violated my parole. I got sent back to prison. And uh, the parole board gave me an additional year. For just for taking notes. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even violate the law or nothing, you know. And I mean, I remember I took the paper back with me that said that I was had to do another year for taking notes. And I was showing the correctional officers there at the prison and stuff, and they were like shaking their head, you know. The one the one correction officer told me that I had uh, missed hitting a 15-year-old field goal. <laughs> You know, it was, <laughs> but it was crazy and stuff. But, but you know, it was that year, that extra year that really set my life straight. It put me in a position to where I was thinking that God was taking such good care of me that I wanted to find out how to kind of return the favor to him, you know. And uh, I started going to Catholic services and Catholic services. You know, I, I I missed telling you a part back in 2008. I was uh, shooting heroin back then. I would started when I was 44 years old. And that was the year that I had started was 2008. And at the end of 2008, I uh, got an infection in my foot and I ended up they gave me 13 operations on it trying to re- uh, remove the infection. They couldn't do it. So my foot was all hollowed out and stuff. And they just wanted to tie a, put a, put a, a, a staff in my upper leg and cut my tendon off and tie it to that so that my foot would heal flat so that they said that I could gimp around on it. And I just said, you know what, just take it right off. So I have a, a, below, a right below knee amputation now since 2008. And, uh, you know, I had this when I was in prison and stuff, you know, but it was like no big deal to them, you know, but um, <clears throat> but uh, so I was in Catholic services and Catholic services, they want you to get down on the floor, you know, and pray and, you know, say these say their sayings and stuff, you know, and, and in Protestant church, they don't make you do none of that. You can just sit there and, you know, kind of relax and listen to what the preacher's saying, you know, and go about your business when you're done. But the Catholics, they wanted you to do something more. So I'm, I'm, I'm tempted just to leave the Catholics and go back over to the Protestants. But for some reason, I just decided to stay with the Catholics. And, uh, you know, I, it started getting easier for me to get down on my knees and stuff three times, a, 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 you know, in a meeting. And, you know, I'm like, I can do this, you know. And uh, so I, I learned everything. I learned most of the things that the Catholics were trying to teach me. And, uh, you know, I memorized the, uh, the rosary and all of the decades and all of the mysteries, all of the prayers that go along with saying the rosary. And uh, when I take my walks in the morning, I'll, I'll say the rosary, you know, and it will help me with, with my day, you know, it'll help me get along through my day and stuff, you know, because I had that 
that 20 minutes with God that it takes me to say the rosary, you know, and walk for, walk for make the mile walk that I do. And uh, to really improve my relationship with my higher power. And it's uh, really gave me a new understanding that, you know, that my life, because, oh yeah, <laughs> I ended up going to college, getting involved with college right after I got out of prison. And my parole officer loved me because I was uh, volunteering at the Allen Club in Flint, uh, you know, doing free work there. And then I was going to college too, you know, taking my classes to get my business, uh, my degree in uh, business administration. And uh, so I ended up completing my parole and I'm still going to college and I graduate in uh, May next month to graduate and uh with my associate degree and then i've already been approved for my uh to go on to my bachelor's degree and uh i'm finding myself on a dean's list because i have a 3.86 grade point average now oh that's amazing <laughs> yeah yeah it actually is it's uh, amazing the things that we can accomplish in recovery sure it is so I've come to realize in in business administration, they teach you that before you start a business, want it to be successful, you'll sit down and you'll brainstorm all of the things that could potentially go wrong. And you'll make a, have a plan in place to execute if that something, if that wrong happens, you know? if it happens so along those lines i understand now that before god created the universe he came up and he thought he he thought of all the different things that could go wrong and he had a plan in place for that before he even created our universe so that means that the plan for my life today has been around for 13.8 billion years of my years you know and and it makes me humble that i can actually be a part of such an ancient plan to where the timing is perfect you know for my life and 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 this plan leads to my success and the only thing i have to do really is to just let it happen (laughs) Mm -hmm. anymore i don't have to try to worry about zigging or zagging you know to get out of this problem or that problem or anything you know it's like because the one thing that i can do today is accept whatever happens to me today and if you accept something you won't have a problem with it because when do you have a problem with something that you can accept so you even the bad things that happen to me today, you know, the things that other people consider bad, I just accept it, you know, and I don't have a problem with it. It's like the other day I slipped in the bathtub and uh, I opened up, I, I busted the ceramic soap dish and it left a jagged edge. And when I fell back down into the tub, it sliced my arm open from my shoulder to my elbow and it left about it sliced like had like a two inch gap in this cut in my arm and i knew I, I couldn't see it but i knew i was in trouble when i stuck my hand back there and i felt the gap so i i i got some help paramedics came got me and stuff but i i never felt any pain the only pain that i felt was a little bit of pain in the emergency room when the doctor just before the doctor uh started staple putting the staples in before he before he gave me the lidocaine but you know it's like that was the only pain i felt and i haven't felt any i didn't feel any pain at all the only thing i can think of is because i just accepted it you know i was accepting of it so i think i <laughs> I think I'm living in another dimension these days, you know, that I don't live in the fleshly dimension. I live in the spiritual dimension. 
and all these things that I've heard that Jesus said about how our about how we couldn't enter the kingdom of heaven unless we were like little children. Well, to me, that means that little children haven't they have fresh minds, and you know, entropy hasn't had a chance to work its way in yet with them. So the twelve steps helps you keep the entropy reduced. And it's all done with rigorous honesty. See, to me, rigorous honesty is more than just always telling yourself the truth and not believing lies. To me, rigorous honesty means that if something is out of place, put it where it goes, put it where it belongs. And when after a while and you put it, you have everything where it belongs, then you can really be truly sit back and relax because you know everything is taken care of and you don't have you're not you don't have a big chore ahead of you in the future you know to take care of you know because that's what really causes us to stress out and stuff is when things are out of place so you know there's that and then uh, that's that's probably the biggest issue that I have is uh, making sure you know that everything's kept in its proper place so you um you told us how you got sober. Now, tell us what you do to stay sober. And my other question is, what have you learned from all this? And do you have any advice for our viewers and listeners? Yeah, well, I uh, these days I go every single morning. I wake up at uh, between four and uh, five thirty, and I. I'm ready to uh, join a Zoom meeting at six o'clock for uh, an early birds meeting where I participate in the meeting. And every Thursday now, I I, uh, I chair the meeting. And, uh, you know, I'm constantly on Facebook in the 12 step groups offering telling people, you know, and I'm friendly with everybody, you know, and I don't say any, neg- any, any negative things. I don't tear people down. Even if I think that they're wrong, I'll still encourage them to do what's right, you know, and uh, I just have an abundance of friends these days. And, uh, you know, and I take my walk in the morning and I say the rosary. And if I ever have a negative thought entering my head these days, I just think of something positive. I'll actually say the rosary if I start thinking negative. And the rosary will spend 20 minutes with God, you know, it's like has has an uplifting feeling, you know, with me. It's not depressing anymore because my my diagnosis from the time I was 19 years old was manic depressive, and then after that, and after my uh, nervous breakdown in 2011, I got the diagnosis of being majorly depressed. Because I can't tell you how many times I tried to kill myself. I hated myself because I thought that I was a complete failure. You know, but uh, the author Mel- Malcolm Gladwell, he said that on the road to great achievement, the late boomer will resemble a failure. That gives me great hope, you know, because uh, I know that, you know, that I got a better life in store for me. And it's only getting better and better and better with my relationship with my higher power and by working the 12 steps, keeping it, you know, incorporate, I incorporated the 12 steps into my life, you know, I'm uh, constantly uh, meditating and, you know, watching myself and uh, helping others. And with those three things, you know, it's like, keeps me, on a, it gives me, keeps my thinking straight, you know? Well, that was an amazing story. You've been through a lot. And it yeah. looks like you handle a lot as well. 
So that's all we got for today, I guess. Did you have anything else you wanted to add before we end this? Yeah, I wanted to say that uh, the other day I had a, uh, an appointment with my uh, psychiatrist, and they're uh, going to be reducing the well-being that I'm on by hand. They did. So now I take usually take two 150s every day. Now I just take the one 150 and throw it right in the garbage. <laughs> and, you know, and I never have never thought about committing suicide again. And I don't have negative thoughts. You know, I'm constantly uh, thinking positive things, you know. And if I hear people talking negative, I won't even, it won't even distract me at all you know i just stay focused because i believe that in the bible when the apostle peter was walking on the water that he was distracted by the things that were going on around him in the fleshly world and what happened he started sinking and he almost lost his life so that means that we that that the negative things are always out there. They're screaming out at us, trying to distract us away from the things that are really important in our life. And but we have to we have to fight sometimes. It's a struggle to stay focused on what we need to do and what we need to get done. That's great. That's really great. So let's wrap it up here. I want to thank you again, Stuart, for coming on the show. And for everybody listening and watching, if you can, and you like what you heard and saw, go below, give us a subscription, and also give us a like. Also, you can check us out on Twitter, Instagram. We also post on Facebook. uh, Facebook. And in Facebook, if you go to the Groups tab, you will see a lot of stuff in the Events tab as far as different Zoom meetings. So we do those every night at 6.30 Eastern time. All that information is listed in the events tab. So that's all I have for today. And until next time.